Welcome to The Marketing Commute, a podcast that explores the roads taken and the lessons learned for the best and brightest in marketing today. I'm Mike Boyd, and joining me on The Commute this time are Andrew Baxter, Senior Advisor at KPMG Australia. Hi, Mike. Professor Vince Mitchell, Professor of Marketing at the University of Sydney Business School. Hi, Mike. And Carmen Becker, Partner at KPMG Australia and Leader of their CMO Advisory Practice. Hi, Mike. In this episode of The Marketing Commute, we're joined by Tony Palmer. Tony's a global business leader and board member with an exceptional record of accelerating growth at leading consumer brands, including Kimberly Clark, Kellogg, and Coca-Cola. More recently, Tony is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Tropic Sport, an eco-friendly sun care and skin care line free from the toxic chemicals commonly found in conventional skin and sun products. Tropic Sport combined Tony's passion for e-commerce and extreme water sports, a deep commitment to the health of the planet, and of course, his Australian roots. And we'll also get the latest thoughts and perspectives on marketing trends in Mitchell's Marketing Minute. All right, let's go. Okay, people, what's caught our eye this week? Oh, it's really the run on uh, various services for the home, given what's actually happening at the moment with coronavirus. JB Hi-Fi in there the other day, absolutely packed. There weren't enough salespeople. Um, half of the apples had sold out, the Apple Macs. Um, the televisions were going off the shelf. It was extraordinary to see. Yeah, I've, I've heard the same thing um, being said of um, of Officeworks. You know, a lot of people were going you know earlier in the week, going home to to preparing to go home to work and going into Officeworks to 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 stock up, and nothing available, and they just they just can't supply um, resupply fast enough. I think it is interesting, you know, whatever crises we go through, um, GFCs, recessions, world wars, um, you know, now pandemics like this, that there'll always be sort of winners and losers around brands in crises. And I think, you know, you're right, I think, you know, healthcare obviously is one this time around that will will clearly benefit some of the retailers will, some won't. You know, we're hearing that restaurants um, are in a lot of trouble, um, uh, you know, around uh, off the back of this crisis. So it is interesting, you know, tapping into those either immediate or longer-term trends and figuring out where those opportunities may well be. And online shopping, obviously, is another big one that's, that'll be taking off right now. Well, that's right. And I think and I think that will that, that will come at the expense of, you know, I, I hate to say it, I, th- I think travel agencies are probably gone and arguably never to recover. Um, you know, news agents as well. I just, I, just can't, I just can't see anything that needs foot traffic. I just can't see the, long, the longer-term resumption of play. Yeah, speaking about the fortunes of online, as if Amazon needed any more help, right? <laughs> yeah. um, the biggest logistical company in the world, yeah, yeah, this, this, they are really going to come into their own over the next yeah, few months yeah, because of this. Um, I, I guess yeah, for me, in terms of uh, changes that, that happen in, in crises, yeah, it's about community changes yeah, and, and the, 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 where, where people find yeah, help and resources yeah, closer to home. Yeah, and, and, and they aren't yeah, looking necessarily at brands, they're looking yeah, at each other. And of course, yeah, in this particular case, self-isolation yeah, means that family time yeah, that people have been struggling for yeah, for many years in terms of work-life balance suddenly comes into just stark relief. And actually you can have yeah, a bit more family time. And so, so maybe yeah, yeah, this is an opportunity for some people to do, do exactly that, to connect with each other and their, and their children and, or, and other grandparents. And, and that could be a real yeah, advantage for them. And also for businesses to get a little bit creative about um, people being at home. For example, my local coffee shop is, uh, he's buying a coffee cart 
So he can come to the street, you can order on Hey You, and he can drop it off at the front of your house, the coffee, so you can get your morning coffee fix without even um, leaving the house. So ideas like that are really, really key right now for businesses and brands. It will be because obviously these are all very short term, has to happen now. It'll be interesting when we talk to Tony a bit later about some of the long term crises we may face, climate change, et cetera, because I think there's different reactions yes. to be had then. Yes, everyone seems to have this view that this is look, this is going to be massively impactful, but not that it's going to be years. You know, people are talking months and, you know, hopefully shorter. Therefore, things will rebound but it will be a different type of rebound. But but if, if people, yeah, whether that be yeah, individuals, yeah, families, yeah, uh, associations of people, businesses, governments, yeah, institutions, yeah, through this crisis yeah, are, are able to yeah, build yeah, yeah, better ways of working together yeah, for this crisis, then maybe yeah, some of that working together can have a, a long-term effect on the climate change and the, the bigger poverty yeah, as a world issue that, that, that may come out of it. Who knows? Mm. Our guest in this episode is a globally recognised business leader, board member and entrepreneur. Tony Palmer worked as the regional director of the Coca-Cola Company in Australasia before moving to the UK to work as the managing director of the Kellogg Company in the UK and Ireland. And after Kellogg, Tony became the Chief Marketing Officer of Kimberly Clark for six years based in Dallas, which is when I first met Tony, given Ogilvy's long association with the company. He was then appointed the President of Global Brands and Innovation for Kimberly Clark in 2012, where he worked until 2019. In 2018, Tony saw a gap in the market for eco-friendly sun and skincare products, leading him to found Tropic Sport, which we look forward to hearing all about today. Tony, thanks for taking the time to join us on the Marketing Commute. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Now... It's certainly been a long road from studying marketing at Monash University uh, in Melbourne to global roles at the likes of Kimberly Clark and now founding your own business. What got you into marketing in the first place? And then how did you make that transition into regional and global roles? I guess um, I could give you a long story, but the real answer is it was the place that could take me, yeah? But uh, <laughs> in, in reality, I, I actually did smart at, start a small business very early on before I went to college and... Uh, I, that experience was really was about marketing and selling at a very micro level. And uh, I think that unleashed a passion for me. And actually a mentor at the time took me aside and said, you really should go study this because you seem to have a natural bent for it. And uh, so I sold the small business I had and just went and got into marketing, which turned out a very good thing to do because I had a great passion for it. And it's been a lifelong pursuit of fun you know and and you you went from doing that union into some regional and global roles pretty quickly what what was the story behind that you know i i did the degree and then i went and worked in management consulting in, in a couple of a couple of ways really i did operations consulting at pa consulting group and that was very down and dirty sort of operations consulting working in maintenance uh, management and understanding uh, the workings of the business at a very basic operational level. Then I had the good fortune to uh, be selected to go to IMD and do an M MBA. And fortunately, PA Consulting agreed to pay for my MBA. I did the MBA in Switzerland at what was then IMI, which is now IMD. And coming back from there, I had a commitment to come back from there with PA, which I did, and uh, spent another two years with PA doing more strategic consulting but then they they were a 
sort of at that time partnering with the LEK partnership and I moved across there to do much more strategic consulting and M&A and uh, strategy work. So I had that sort of base of, I think, broader knowledge before I went to Mars and took on a brand leadership role at Mars. And I, I think that background really helped me a lot to have a, a broad perspective. So, uh, you know, that sort of broader base and then the, the running a business base at Mars, I went to CSR Sugar for a little while and had marketing and sales, which an R&D, which broadened my sort of experience again. And then from there, I went to the US to work with Coca-Cola. So, Tony, you've you worked in obviously senior roles, some of the world's largest multinational brands for over 20 years. What then inspired you to then leave that world and start a new journey with your own business? You know, this is a passion pursuit for me. And the story goes back about uh, actually about 12 years. And I went back to Noosa to teach my kids to surf, actually. And I'd, I grew up as a surf lifesaver. And my father was a sheep shearer and a surf lifesaver himself and an abalone diver. And um, I took him back and to teach them to surf. And I saw the reef was honestly wasn't what I remembered at Noosa many years before. And then you fast forward about two years and I got diagnosed with lymphoma. So the combination of those two events and doing research on those, on the issues and what causes them, sunscreen came up as a common denominator. And it just turns out that my kids, are, I've got young twins, they're 17 years old now. Back then they were about five or six. They're really water kids. You know, they, my son's a surfer and a water polo player and my daughter's a diver and just spent a semester at the island school doing marine biology research as a junior in high school. So that was sort of the the impetus to go develop a better product and uh, a non-chemical product that would be safe for you and safe for the reef. Really, the, the whole motivation was uh, to give my kids and their friends a better solution. Uh, it was as simple as that. And it was a six-year process of research and development and trial and error to get to a better product. So that was like a weekend project, you know. So it's it's 2020 now. How important do you think it is that companies, you know, communicate to their consumers that they are or their products are environmentally friendly and sustainable? I, I think it it is really important. The uh, clean thesis, that sort of clean, better for you, better for the environment segment is big and growing. So I, I do think it's very important. And I, I think that the, I don't think, I know from research that consumers' willingness to give you a break on that front is getting less and less. And uh, it's moving to them starting to punish you for not being focused in that space, you know. So I think, I think it is important. And I think if you, you know, I worked in the food industry when, a, when front of pack labeling was just starting to become an issue. And it was obvious that people were eating more and they're exercising less, obesity was going to be a problem. Well, I think this is the same thing. You know, we've only got one planet. We're polluting it. In the long term, you've got to do something about it. And uh, you've got to start the journey today and consumers are recognizing that, you know. Tony, given it seems like a, a no-brainer of an idea, right? Yeah, yeah. In your experience, what do you think yeah, impedes uh, your companies from making more progress in this area then? I have a particularly 
interesting perspective on that. Well, I think it's interesting. You might think it's boring, but I have a, I have a, I shouldn't say an interesting perspective. I have an unusual view of it from where I sit, having run a really big company, you know, a $20 billion company and now running a tiny company and seeing our competitors who are large organizations, just not reacting to it. And the real answer is it's the classic innovators dilemma. They've got some, you know, 96% of the market isn't safe for people and safe for the environment. The FDA has made that very clear coming out and saying that out of 12 of 16 active ingredients approved for use in the US, only two can be generally recognized as safe and effective. So, but these companies have a very low cost, high margin products that they've been delivering for years. And it's going, whichever way they look at it, going this direction is going to be margin dilutive for them and their brands won't carry that premium. So we're in a position where we're picking off the 30 million consumers out of the 360 million in the US who really care about this. And we know the six and a half thousand postcodes that they predominantly live in and we're targeting those and uh, picking the eye out of the market. And, uh, you know, they're the classic boiling frog. They'll wake up one day and they're boiled but uh, they don't feel the water getting hotter. And it's sort of shocking, but we've had a lot of strategic interest in our company. And it's really from companies that aren't in that space who see an opportunity there, who are looking to get into it more so than it is the people in it who are the boiling frogs. And having been in the shoes of a marketer um, and also in the role of CEO, how do you think marketers can uh, overcome this dilemma? What can they be doing day to day or thinking about or the sorts of plans they could put together? What would be your advice for them to push forward into a more innovative space? There There are different ways to think about this. You know, it did take me six years of trial and error and real life testing to develop a better product and it's a demonstrably better product and your normal company wouldn't have the patience to do that right if you can't do it in a very short time frame you uh you tend to throw it out the door and and you don't come up with a transformational idea in five minutes Mm. so you you have to have patience to let an an idea be turned into reality in a but you need to be very clear that the idea is truly a big idea and it's not a, um, a transient sort of uh, fad, yeah? And this is where marketing hasn't changed and people like to talk about everything that's changed in marketing, but the reality is truly understanding a consumer need, it has been the core of marketing since I was a boy and uh, it still is. So, so really understanding what is the big consumer idea and then having the patience to turn it into a big, a truly a transformational idea is really important. And, you know, at a corporate level in a really big company, the way the way I handled that or we handled that was to segregate off our longer range R&D efforts and our longer range marketing efforts and make sure we invested in those, which honestly, when I started at Kimberly Clark, we didn't do. And invest in those for the long term and accept that you need a longer planning horizon for it. And in a world where everybody's talking agile and fast, you do have to be agile. And, you know, at Tropic Sport, we'll change our packaging in, we've actually, I've done that overnight by changing it by hand, you know, and putting insert mm-hmm. cards into packs, et cetera. Yeah. Um, 
so you have to be agile, but you've also got to be consistent in your pursuit of ideas and not chase the next bright, shiny object. And they're not actually in conflict and too many organizations are forgetting the consistent purpose and driving after transformational ideas to chase the bright, shiny object. And it's interesting you talked before about knowing your customer and being very specific about where you're targeting them, the postcodes they live in, et cetera. Are you thinking about any interesting or different uh, marketing strategies to bring this brand to market that we may not have thought of before? I'm not arrogant enough to think that I'm doing something that nobody's thought of before. You You never know. (laughs) The light bulb was invented in five different places at once. You know, I I don't think we're doing anything that is truly unique. I think we might be assembling it in a unique way. And uh, as I said, we took six years to get the proposition right. By the way, when we researched the proposition, we got 100% 100 probably definitely would buy against our target, which I've never seen in my life, Mm, you know. No, that's rare. And we have a significant advantage post-use, so you've got that in hand. The thing that we're doing, which may be a little unique, is we've assembled a distribution and marketing strategy where we try to be where we have an unfair advantage. And uh, so we're in places that really care about being clean, you know, so and places where people will take notice and places where the mass brands aren't. So it's surf shops and large surf chains and it's uh, running stores and uh, tour operators. Uh, Interestingly, cruise lines really care about sustainability and you can be there with no competitor. And e-commerce where we can very specifically target people that really care. And are willing to spend a lot, you know, big baskets. So our average basket size is like $60 on e-commerce. So I think we might be assembling it in a reasonably unique way. And the only mainstream distribution we're going into are places where sunscreen sold in an aisle where there's a consultant who can actually tell you why we're different. And we refused to go to some retailers where they won't support us that way. And that's the beauty of owning your own company, right? Or running your own company. It's like you're not forced into doing what's not right. Tony, we often need mentors to help us with our career directions. Uh, Who have been yours and how have they helped? Well, it's a great question. You know, I've had some tremendous mentors. And just to give you uh, a view of a couple of them, I'd say uh, Sergio Zeman was one who, uh, Sergio, he was the chief marketing officer at Coca-Cola when I joined Coke. He recruited me out of Australia. I was working at CSR Refined Sugars, and actually we'd worked out that uh, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola couldn't buy their sugar requirements, their total sugar requirements from any other player in the market. So they actually couldn't manufacture without us, which meant we could take price with pretty much glee and abandon, right? So we were had some really tough negotiations with them. And after those negotiations, Sergio came to hire me as a result of them. And he was a great mentor. He was a tough guy and pretty difficult to work with and a little bit bombastic. And he wouldn't mind me saying that because I've said it to his face, but he, um, a genius. And uh, after he offered me the job in the US, I called him up and said, Sergio, I don't understand. There's got to be people, lots of people in the US that could do this job. I haven't even, at that time, I'd never even traveled to the US. And I said, I don't want to talk myself out of this job, but you're giving me a promotion and moving me to another country. Why? 
And Sergio's response was, because I believe you're an athlete and I'd, I'd like to see an athlete with a dream and a job any day than a person looking for a job. And uh, he just took a chance on me. And that was a really sort of life-changing, formative thing for me. Um, and it led me to take a chance on a lot of people over time. So that was the first one. The other is a guy by the name of Ram Sharan, who uh, is actually a, a, written a lot of books and uh, is a very well-known sort of business uh, guru in the US. And Ram's been my mentor for uh, 10, 15 years now. And the thing Ram taught me, which I think was really interesting, I, I started on the board and Ram took me aside and said, Tony, you really suck as a board member. You talk too much. And uh, he he taught me to, when I'm in a board meeting, to uh, when I thought of a question, write down about five different ways to ask the question, then choose the best way to ask it. And if the opportunities passed you by, it probably wasn't important enough anyway. It was just the dynamic of a boardroom where talking less is better, letting the management team talk and asking very thoughtful questions. And I started doing that. And in about three months, I had the chairman of the board come to me and say, I don't know what you've done, but oh my gosh, you've gone from be being a new inexperienced board member to being really valuable in the last three months. And that it's just that simple insight, right? And that advice is amazing. And Ram's a guy who just really simplifies stuff to its kernel. Just want to just want to pick up on that board stuff, Tony, because uh, you know one of the stats we read about is that only about six percent of Australian boards have a marketer on them, and only two and a half percent in the US have got people with a marketing background. What? And you've been on you know Hershey for uh, quite a long period of time. What What do you think a marketer can bring to a board um, outside of those general you know board skills that you require? Well, I'd start off by saying I don't actually believe those statistics because. I'm not sure, for example, I'd show up as a marketer in those statistics and uh, because I was a president of a company, so I'd probably show up as a general manager, you know, but I, at my core, I'm a marketer. And uh, because I believe that business is about growth and demand generation. But I, I also don't think that the what you necessarily bring to a board is functional experience. You, you do bring some. But really, uh, Ram was, I believe, right on the, the money when he told me to be very thoughtful about the questions I asked and taught me how to do it. And it, it's, um, it's really the real value added in a board is asking thought-provoking questions that makes the management team think and gets them to come to better conclusions. And it's a very different skill than you're taught in business. And uh, honestly... The other half of a board board's work is uh, governance and the um, you know the understanding of all the elements of governance from uh, you know compensation governance to um, financial governance etc. Making sure that the business is run in a in the right manner within the rules and uh, so they're they're actually very different skills and I, the final piece I'm. You know, I've just become the lead director at Hershey and I'd say, you know, board leadership is really about getting people, uh, getting people's opinions on the table and making sure everybody's heard rather than impacting the discussion yourself. And actually a really good chairman or a really good lead director says very little in the room. 
So I think they're the really valuable skills. And sure, you bring a functional piece to it, but uh, it's much more about that. And then finally, creating a collaborative dynamic in the boardroom is really important, you know, because management watches the board like kids watch their parents. I'd like to ask you about uh, what advice you might give to some of our young marketing students just starting out on their career. Do you have any pearls of wisdom for them? A couple of really simple things that you may not hear from others because there's a lot of things you could say. The first is if, if you really want a marketing career, go to school and be truly inquisitive about the consumer and that that's the heart of marketing is understanding the consumer and these days sales and marketing are one and the same i mean even in the retail piece of my tropic sport business it's like a lot of it's about education and the right brand blocking to get people to understand how what's the difference between chemical and mineral sunscreens and so that that's the first thing and i i think people get into it to be in digital marketing or this sort of you know this sort of marketing or that sort of marketing be a consumerist is the first thing and then the other thing is a much more general point which is i didn't know this early in my career and i was much more focused on how i could get ahead rather than helping others but over my career i have helped a lot of people and uh I had this experience when I interviewed at Kimberly Clark, where two people that I worked for in the past called my 2B boss without me knowing. I didn't even know they knew I was interviewing there, but the search consultant had told him and both told my the chairman at Kimberly Clark that he was crazy if he didn't employ me. And that was because I had uh, like an emotional bank account with, with them, which was in the positive because... Um, I'd helped them along the way and done the right thing. And it costs you nothing to help somebody who really needs help. And you don't do it because you want something back, but it's amazing how you build this emotional bank account with a lot of people over a career that comes back to you in so many unexpected ways. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's the best advice I can give. And there was just something you said there that's quite interesting for a lot of our marketers around this merging or sales and marketing being one thing. When we we often get asked or, or our marketers are often wrestling with the merging of those two departments, what's your point of view on that? Could you extrapolate a little bit more? It depends, you know, what sort of channels you're talking about. But mm. the, even with uh, it's in, the perspective in e-commerce has been Look, performance-based marketing is everything and it's all about conversion and selling and um, there's really no room for investment in reach and brand building. And all of a sudden you talk to all the marketing sort of gurus, e-commerce gurus in the US, and they're finally discovering building a brand and they're they're starting to talk about, well, (laughs) you need to reach as well as frequency and conversion to build a business because they're finding that they're running out of growth at, you know, $30, $40 million of revenue. And uh, I mean, that's just to me, Marketing 101, they should be, you know, brand building communication should sell and selling communication should build brands. Mm. And it's the same with trade spend. You know, I don't think of trade spend, you think of as a trade investment and uh, being clear about what you're trying to do with it. If you're trying to drive trial, 
you know, using your trade investment and trial driving vehicles. If you're trying to drive way to purchase, using your trade investment and way to purchase vehicles. Right, getting alignment right down the line is actually a bigger idea than you think these days. And they have to work in unison, I believe. So, Tony, look, st- starting a business is never easy, particularly in an emerging category. What have been some of the main hurdles that you've had to overcome uh, in establishing Tropic Sport? Uh, <laughs> well, and, and so, I, what, what, hang on, why don't, <laughs> why don't we say, give, it, give, us, give us your top three, because I, <laughs> I know what it's like. You could go on for a fortnight. And, it's, and I'm not, not being rude. I, I know there's so many hurdles. But, um, you know, what have, been the, what have been the standouts? Well, the standouts are, um, for me, it, it's just shocking how many mistakes you make. And I think it's okay to make mistakes, but... Uh, you try not not to make fatal ones, you know, and uh, the bigger challenges are probably around the people you deal with. It's very different when you're in a really small company and people, for example, people just don't call you back like they do when you're in a big company and uh, you have to be persistent. So customers don't call you back because you're not a big name company. So you find yourself just calling customers over and over and you feel like you're stalking them or, the other one is in the US, this may not be the case in Australia, people are particularly litigious. And when you're a big company, they don't go after you because they know you've got the defences out there. It's surprising the number of people who try to scam you. or and So just being very careful about running a promotion and making sure that you can't be scammed in a promotion and is sort of the other thing that's surprising when you're in a small mm, company. Unbelievable. Um, and lawyers will kill you in this business. It's sort of it's surprising in the US how big a line legal expenses are because every contract you write, you start out wanting to have a lawyer look at it and you realise you just can't afford it. Yet you end up in a lot of exposure if you don't have contracts right. So there, there are, I, I, you know, I have a lot of experience in business and I have made a lot of mistakes and I try not to make the same mistake twice. It must be incredibly hard for somebody who doesn't have that experience that's making those mistakes for the first time, you know. That's looking back. What about the road ahead? What, uh, you know, what does it look like for, for you and for a Tropic Sport? And, and we're just having a look on the website. When can we buy it here in Australia? Well, we've got to get it up and running and profitable in the US. It's still a non-profit right now. So, uh I, I think, though, you know, we've got massive tailwinds and it, that's the that's the big deal. You know, 96% of sunscreens in the US have ingredients that have a reasonable likelihood, I believe, of being banned in the next few years. So um, we are best positioned to be the big mineral player. So in the short term, it's okay. We just want to be the second best supplier or the second biggest supplier being... You know, a chemical sunscreen is going to beat us for a while, but we want to be their mineral sunscreen of choice, which means we'll have the scale that gets us to be, as the market flips, we'll be right there to take it on, you know. And I, I think it's as simple as that. And being exceptional at everything we do, um, particularly customer service and delivery, is really important. And we don't do anything that can't be scaled because if if you can't, it defeats its purpose. And we have this that conversation all the time. We were just doing a, a test with two-day delivery at, and the SKU, everybody's buying is a $19.99 SKU and you, you'll never make money with a $19.99 basket in e-commerce. So the whole focus is how do you turn that to a $40 basket and keep the two-day shipping? And, you know, it's 
it's just sort of grinding that out every day. And to the point about being agile, you change that in 24 hours, but we have that long-term vision, which is we're going to be the leader in the sunscreen, the healthy alternative sunscreen when it flips that way. And uh, I think that's those two things are really what we're doing, you know. So Tony, from the, from the future to the present, I've got a question for you. This is the Martin commute. How do you commute to work? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't because I actually work from home, so, uh, <laughs> which is a very big difference. But I think the, um, how I did commute to work might be useful to share, which is, and by the way, we have a team of a dozen people and they, they turn up at our house every day and we work from <laughs> here because we're too tight to pay for an office. And my wife works in the business too, so that helps. But uh, on the commute, I, I didn't listen to things on the commute. And this goes to what I think really makes business tick, which is incredible talent. And uh, I always use my commute in business to um, call up people at work for me, not scheduled calls, but just call up the head of sales and say, hey, how are you doing and what's going on? And can I help in any way? And it's amazing when you first start in a really senior, you know, I was when, when I sort of started as president and all these new people are reporting to me, it scared the living daylights out of them that the boss would just call them for no reason. <laughs> but what they get to realize is you actually really do want to help. And if they've got a problem, they can share it with you and you'll try and help them with it. And uh, they very quickly start to actually more or less like those calls as opposed to dread them. And Using the drive time, I had a 30-minute commute and using it to call a couple of people morning and night was an amazing way to keep in touch and it got rid of those horrible weekly updates or bi-weekly updates that people do where they spend the entire time thinking about what the hell am I going to tell my boss because I don't really have anything to tell them and you waste the hour. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you just get sort of stay in regular touch and it's actually a very nice touch to call someone and say, I don't want anything from you. I want to know if I can help you, you know? Well, Tony, that's been a great conversation and thanks so much for joining us uh, on the Marketing Commute and uh, we look forward to keeping in touch and hearing how Tropic Sport goes. Thanks, mate. Well, hey, and thanks for having me on. I've really enjoyed the Aussie accents. I miss them. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime. Thank you very Subscribe much. and you'll hear plenty of them. <laughs> So for this week's marketing commute, yeah, I've taken something from the Sloan Management Year Review, and it's an article entitled The Magic That Makes Customer Experiences Stick. Research shows that memorable experiences and the ensuing positive word of mouth can drive customer decisions as much, if not more than, price and functionality. For example, Forrester Research found customer loyalty is driven more by emotional factors than by rational ones, whilst Gallup suggests that organisations that optimise emotional connections outperform rivals by 26% in terms of gross margin and 85% in terms of sales. This article identifies five ways to infuse customer journeys with emotions. One, and an obvious one, is telling compelling stories. The next is to stimulate the senses and trigger emotions such as surprise, trust, joy and even anticipation. And in the article, yeah, it gives an example of the Ferrari roar of the engine yeah, that might do that. Number three is to turn disappointment into delight. For example, by resolving problems that perhaps an individual didn't cause, but the company actually did. An example given is a global hotel chain based in Delhi, India, that gives its employees funding 
to surprise his guests by turning their problems into opportunities. Number four is plan to surprise, rather like good magicians. As Sony says, everything we do at Sony needs to have that wow, this is pretty cool element. They say we don't just compete on functional specifications anymore, but on people's emotional experiences. And finally, the article advocates running controlled experiments to find out not simply what works, but what works where, when, and for whom. It suggests that even if only 10 to 20% of web experiments that try to improve the Google and Bing experience yield positive results, those 10% add up. And if you're monitoring emotional responses of those, that's an extremely important part of creating memorable customer experiences. So team, ads, at least emotionally ads, may be start of the customer journey, but how about the rest? What do you think of these five elements? I think the five elements are completely true and 100% agree. However, what we always uh, talk about and caution and, and ask our clients to think about is to make sure they deliver on the basics of customer experience first. So pick up the phone, respond in accurate time, make sure you get the name right. So the real basics get the fundamentals right, then move your way up the experience curve. Because we've seen companies that try and create a very good end user experience without fixing uh, the functioning part of the experience and you can see disappointment with the customer. So completely agree, but also focus on the fundamentals and make sure they the basics are right and then elevate your experience as much as you can. There's also a big debate that we see around human versus automation. So what can you automate and what can you add the human touch to? And how much, what degree of automation versus humanization is right for your brand or your business? So it depends what category you're in, but we are seeing a lot of a lot of categories and sectors are 50-50. 50% of people want things to be more automated and 50% want humanized. So what we're advising is that companies look at um, automation to drive the very best human experience. So use uh, the, what's there with machinery, machine learning, um, with all the new technology that you, you can apply to make the human, human interaction the very best it can be. I think we heard earlier about uh, the storytelling around brands and then how you can drive an experience through that. And and if I think through earlier this year, when you look at the Australian Open and all those great um, activations and experiences that a lot of the brands, they're using that opportunity to get to allow people to, to immerse themselves or, or have that experience that builds that, that deeper um, connection with the brand. I want to come back to something that Carmen said, that whole piece around technology bettering the human experience. I still think, particularly in this country at least, we do that very poorly. I think other parts of the world do it. You know, the, the US does it incredibly well, but I think there's a lot to be said for that because the efficiency in terms of speed and time and data and just getting the really, really basic things right is exactly where the opportunity is greatest to be able to harness the power of that. Yet so many people aren't doing it properly, don't have the basics, the, the, the back-end technology set up in such a way that they can best make use of how we make that customer experience, that human element, perfect. Well, that's it for this episode of The Marketing Commute. Thanks to our guest, Tony Palmer. To Andrew Baxter and Carmen Becker from KPMG and to Professor Vince Mitchell from the University of Sydney, 
to our producers, Boyd Britton and Billy Gleeson, the studios here at the University of Sydney Business School, and to KPMG's customer, brand and marketing advisory team. You can find the Marketing Commute and all good podcast networks, and you can read more detailed show notes and get links from each episode and find out more about our guests and presenters at our website, themarketingcommute.com. I'm Mike Boyd. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the next stop on The Marketing Commute. You have reached your destination.